Welcome to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, a special podcast from the Cairo Review of Global Affairs, where we talk to policymakers, experts, and academics about how the war in the Gaza Strip is unfolding and the prospects of a political endgame. I'm Nadine Shaker. The war in Gaza has earned Palestinians a broad spectrum of new supporters and friends, especially from anti-Zionist Jewish organizations in the United States. Young progressive Jews calling for a ceasefire in Gaza have spent weeks since October 7th shutting down major U.S. train stations, highways, and government buildings. Their rallying cries included, Not in our name, never again for anyone, and ceasefire now. These messages of solidarity ring loud, but can they reverberate beyond these demonstrations to cause change within government and Congress, especially as criticism of Israel is being increasingly shut down and classified as anti-Semitism by U.S. officials? I'm joined today by Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a nonprofit organization working to promote peace between Israelis and Palestinians. This interview was recorded on December 15th, 2023. Okay, Lara, thank you so much for being on the podcast with me today. Uh, I have so many questions for you, but first I'd like to ask you about how things are in the U.S. right now. I mean, we've been seeing a lot of, you know, protests, a lot of perhaps shift in public opinion. So I wanted to ask, is that true? And how has public opinion shifted, if at all? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's sort of a moving target, but I think we can say very clearly right now, this is this is unprecedented, what we're seeing now in terms of um, support for Palestinian rights, in terms of people coming out in the streets, uh, with people lobbying their members of Congress, um, the the sort of uh, the sort of activism we're seeing in universities. Um, you know, there there have been obviously previous wars on Gaza, previous incidents, previous rounds, and and there's a core of the grassroots that that cares deeply about Palestine. But what we're seeing this time is an upsurge in broader support, progressive support, particularly from younger Americans. Mm. And it's it's very cross-cutting. It's it's not just Palestinian Americans, it's not just Arab Americans, it's not just Muslim Americans, it's not just brown and black Americans. I mean, this has become for for particularly a younger generation, um, which, and here I'm going to quote a really brilliant woman named Rania Batrice, who I know, this is this is a generation that is motivated by concerns about people and planet, right? Yeah. And this moment and seeing what the U.S., what their government is supporting, is implicated in, is, is really bringing out a level of, of engagement and activism and, and awareness like nothing we've seen before. And the longer this goes on, one might think that people would get tired and, and stop being engaged, and that's not happening. The longer this goes on, the more we're seeing engagements and activism. And I want to talk about the young generation of activists that you just referenced. And we've been seeing massive ceasefire protests from groups like the Jewish Voice for Peace, other anti-war, anti-Zionist organizations. I want to ask you, how was this generation's uh, voices shaped uh, and how is their movement being perceived in the U.S., especially uh, among the Jewish community, American Jewish community? 
Look, when I think about my nieces and nephews and, and, and my goddaughter and, you know, that generation, this is a generation that is shaped by the, I want to say maybe the mistakes, the, the, the harms of their parents. They're very much aware, their parents, their grandparents, they're aware of that when it comes to climate change, for example. They're very much aware of that. They have um, come of age in the era of Black Lives Matter and COVID and the, the legacies of the Iraq War. You know, it's 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 a generation which, you know, from my own engagements and, and this isn't speaking about everyone. There are obviously different cohorts and there's a cohort in this generation that is you know, very right wing conservative MAGA. There's a cohort that deeply supportive of Israel. It's 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 the whole gamut. But it is in general, I think, and what we're seeing in universities, it is a generational cohort that is suspicious of being told what to think. Um, that is determined to find their own path, that is comfortable and, in fact, insists on self-educating and they listen to each other and they want to see original sources, which is why, you know, I, I said to a journalist recently, you know, you can put whatever you want in an article in the paper. This is a generation that's getting online and looking at the videos of what's happening in Gaza. And that feels that they have not just a right, but an obligation to draw their own conclusions. And, and that doesn't mean all their conclusions are going to be right. Not, nobody's right all the time, right? But, you know, they're not going to read an article saying, well, Israel had to do this in Khan Yunus and therefore it's okay. What they're looking at are pictures of pancaked buildings with legs sticking out of them, with children's legs, you know? And they're saying, I don't care how you frame that. That's That's not okay. And it's not a simplistic, that's not okay, one, you know, here's a simplistic answer, but it is an answer which says, first and foremost, stop the killing. And if you can't get behind ceasefire, stop killing children, then you're the problem, not my analysis. Mm. And I'm sure as well that not everyone agrees with them. So I'm sure there isn't consensus, you know, uh, about that particular point of view. So I did want to ask you about the different Jewish American responses to the war and in what ways are they leaning? Look, the, the Jewish American, I mean, there's, a, there's always been a joke long, long before this current crisis that within any Jewish American, within my family, if you've got, you know, four people, you've got five opinions. Um, that's, and that, that's not a specifically Jewish thing, right? This is, you know, people have their views. Um, it is, there is not unanimity within the Jewish American community. I think if you look at what's happening at the grassroots and JVP, and if not now, a lot of the the loud voices coming out standing with Palestinian Americans are Jewish American voices, and and it's not for nothing that the 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 mainstream, uh, what we like to think of as like the leg the legacy Jewish American organizations, the leaders who say they speak for the Jewish community are in some ways most incensed about the Jewish American groups and kids that are standing with Palestinians. Like the <laughs> biggest problem isn't Palestinians. The biggest problem is these Jewish kids who are legitimizing them. Um, and we saw that actually in the last election as well in the U.S. when when APAC's um, super PAC worked to bring down a very, a very popular uh, Jewish member of Congress, because I would argue they took him down in part because he had been legitimizing um, the more progressive members of the squad. So, I mean, there there is a lack of unanimity. Um, what you see, though, and this is very clear in the the sort of organized pushback that we're seeing, and I don't know if people in Egypt are watching the debate in Congress and more broadly about education, right? There, there seems to be this um, this campaign. It doesn't seem to be. It's been publicly declared in you know in press releases. There, there is a campaign basically to get quote unquote anti-Semitism, and I put it in quotes on purpose, out of academia. 
The argument being that allowing these kind of protests on campus is anti-Semitism because it makes Jewish students uncomfortable. The argument there being that support for Israel and Zionism is intrinsic to Jewish identity and therefore making people uncomfortable for their support for Israel and Zionism is anti-Semitic. Now, the irony in that framing is that when critics of Israel say support for Israel and Zionism is intrinsically Jewish, people say, oh, you're an anti-Semite because you're not distinguishing between Israel and Judaism. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we're saying if you don't conflate them, you're also an anti-Semite. But you have this this absolute, um, you know, it's an incredibly focused and energized campaign to basically say universities must shut this all down or they are supporting anti-Semitism. And we've had an escalation now in the rhetoric and accusations, arguing it's not just support for anti-Semitism, but to argue that Palestinian rights discourse, language, like, you know, the river, anything using the term river to the sea, let's note that that language is in, that is part of the Likud platform, that the river to the sea, it will be Israeli sovereignty. But if you say river to sea for Palestinians, it is a call for genocide. Um, so you have to shut that all down or you're supporting genocide and anti-Semitism. And on top of that, we have this framing, and there's been several letters in Congress going after academia, even down to like the kindergarten through 12th grade level, children's you know, teaching, basically arguing that the fact that the younger generation isn't as pro-Israel and Zionist as its predecessors proves that the educational system is anti-Semitic. The only explanation for why kids are not more pro-Israel is because teachers are teaching them from kindergarten to be anti-Semites. Um, so there's definitely a, a a very strong concern on, you know, we're losing the minds of the next generation. So going after that. I did want to build on, uh, you know, what you said. I did have a question about anti-Semitism and uh, I know you dedicate uh, a lot of your work to, uh, I know there's a section called Lawfare that's sort of dedicated to legislation used to quell Palestinian voices. And I had a specific question about if there have been developments in that regard since October 7, you said there was an escalation. But uh, if you can point out, you know, specific ways, you know, laws and courts have been targeting Palestinian voices. So, I mean, the courts is a long process, so you can't really start by October 7th. Anything that's happening now would have started long before October 7th. And there are more, you know, there's more cases being raised by um, by pro-Israel lawfare actors challenging various universities. Some of this may show up in court down the road. Um, but what we're seeing really right now is a, a doubling down of energies in Congress. So we've had, there was a resolution introduced um which basically states that using the term river to the sea, Palestine will be free or any derivation of that is automatically anti-Semitic and a call for genocide, even if the person using it doesn't know it. Like you have a senator who wants to, who has that inner resolution, he wants the Senate to adopt. We had a resolution adopted in the House a week ago that explicitly says anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. Um, we're sort of rushing uh, towards some sort of legislating. And, and I have to say there's a broader context here, which is there's been a campaign going on now for a number of years around the world, led by an organization called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IHRA, which is promoting the adoption 
of a definition of anti-Semitism, which explicitly conflates criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism, and which explicitly it's got it's a, a set of, um, of 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 examples attached to it. And according to those examples, virtually any meaningful activism or criticism of Israel or Zionism can be defined and dismissed as anti-Semitism. And, you know, if you look at the framing around that definition, people are like, oh, it's non-binding. It's it's fine. It's a non-binding definition when it just sits out there in the ether on somebody's website. But the campaign is to have it adopted and enforced. And this is what we're seeing in Germany, where it's having absolute mm. you know, catastrophic impact on free speech. And that's the effort across the U.S. We have a number, a number of U.S. states that have adopted it. Well, many U.S. states have adopted it already um, by proclamation where, you know, it doesn't necessarily have the force of law. But in at least two U.S. states, it's been adopted as part of a hate crimes law. As I as I understand the law, if you were, for instance, arrested in the process of a sit in at a university and you were arrested for trespassing and malicious vandalism for painting free Palestine, Based on that law, because the IRA definition has been woven into the law and is now part of the sentencing structure, they could argue this was a hate crime and have enhanced enhanced um, sentencing. So instead of getting, you know, a pro probation and a fine, you could go to jail. So it's very clear what the pathway is here. We fundamentally what this is about is saying we cannot win the argument on its merits. So we are going to go after the people making the argument and shut it down. It's crazy. And the implications of that are, you know, obvious and dangerous. But I, I was really curious about how that dynamic plays out when a member of the Jewish community makes that criticism. I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> that is an excellent question. The bottom line is those who are pushing this definition, this framing, do not, I think, distinguish between who is who whose free speech they want to shut down. The Anti-Defamation League, the head of the Anti-Defamation League has made very clear he views Jewish people who are anti-Zionist or cross the lines that he has decided are the lines that should be there for criticism of Israel. They're also anti-Semitic. We've heard this from, from Israeli leaders, you know, that Jews can, it's Jewish anti-Semitism. Um, Jewish people, I mean, I, I am on a regular basis um, attacked on social media as an un-Jew or Jew in name only. Because we have a new framing. It's not entirely new. It's been it's been coming up for a few years with the Barry Weiss, Barry Weiss's book on new anti-Semitism and things like that. But it's framing that basically says being Jewish is no longer about your your religious identity. Being Jewish is about supporting Israel. And and you can have people like you know right wing non Jewish um, pundits who say I'm more Jewish than this person because I support Israel. And that person claims to be Jewish, but they're not Orthodox. Apparently, you're only Jewish if you're an Orthodox. If you're progressive, then if you're not Orthodox, you can't really claim to be Jewish anyway. See, and you know, if you're not progress, if you're not supportive of Israel, you're not really Jewish. You know, in this new identity. You talked about uh, progressive Jewish identity, and we've seen a lot of progressive voices, Jewish voices, come out in the media um, and really make fabulous statements and uh, call for the end of war and all that. Uh, I did want to ask you, you know, with all this public pressure and civil disobedience, why isn't it translating uh, into political gains? In, even with the aid package, 
the supplementary aid package, um, you know, they wanted to attach conditions to it. And everyone came out and said, oh, this is like break from the no strings attached, you know, nature of this transaction. Then after that, the State Department circumvented Congress and, and approved a $106 million sale of tank ammo to Israel. So can you weigh in on why this counter movement isn't translating over? So here I'm going to, maybe I'll offer a tiny bit of maybe, maybe better news. I don't want to say I disagree. I think it is having impact. The counter, the movement is having impact. It's taking longer than I wish it would, and it's, or that many people wish it would. Um, and it certainly is not having the, 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 the kind of weight of impact that maybe people would like, but it, it is. If you look back to the beginning of Israel's campaign against Gaza, look, October 7th, I think it is completely understandable and correct that members of Congress, that the administration rallied in support of Israel and Israelis. Um, what happened on October 7th, and I, I'm a little, I'm still a little baffled when I come across people who are skeptical that it happened or whatever. I mean, the, it is, it is the, the details, all of the details that happened is going to be subject to a longer investigation. There is no question, however you feel about the right of Palestinians to, to resist and to have liberation, that, you know, going into civilian areas and massacring people and taking people hostage, it's horrific. And it was a trauma uh, for Americans and for certainly anyone who cares about Israel. And I think it's appropriate. When we got to October 8th, it was clear almost immediately that Israel's response was going to be far beyond trying to get the hostages back, far beyond trying to take out Hamas leadership, that this was going to be a response attacking every man, woman, and child in Gaza. And, and it was very clear, and this, this goes back to if you believe people when they tell you things, the Israeli when the Israeli government says these are these are not human beings, they are human animals, right? That the, the person in charge of the military says that when they say no food, no water, no no fuel. I mean, it was clear that war crimes were not going to be an issue, and that ethnic cleansing and genocide were on the agenda. And 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 it took a ridiculously long time to start seeing people in Congress or the administration make any noises at all in recognition of that. The change, the fact that now you are seeing. And on, it, what we're seeing from Congress, I, I get from an activist perspective, is, is simply insufficient, but it's still unprecedented. We're having members of Congress talk about, in very concrete terms, conditions on military aid to Israel. We're having very concrete language talking about ceasefire. Certainly not enough, but we didn't have any for the first couple of weeks. We're hearing Biden start to offer some, at least somewhat some language suggesting that Israel should be doing everything it's doing. That is first and foremost a, a reflection of members of, of elected officials seeing what's happening at the grassroots. And the longer this goes on, and I mean, I, I don't, I don't think she, the question is that you know, do you need ten thousand or twenty thousand people to die before you believe that this is bad? I mean, it, it's horrific. But I think more than that, I don't think it's what's happening on the ground that's changing people. I think it's the fact that we've had now two months of, I think, every day, every week, people contacting their their elected officials, people in the street. This isn't going away, which, by the way, means the other side is also ratcheting up its its own campaign of there shall be you know zero daylight between the U.S. and Israel and any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitism, right, as you have wins on the activism side for Palestinian rights and international law, you have an increase in efforts to shut that all down. So it's it's going to always be a push-pull. Thank you for listening to Podcast Palestine, The War on Gaza, and to my guest, Lara Friedman. 
This episode was produced by myself and the Cairo Review's Deputy Senior Editor, Omar Auf. Let us know what you thought of this episode and share your feedback with us on social media. You can also read a transcript of this interview on the Cairo Review website. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Salam. <laughs>